Hello and welcome to the shiny new object podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week I have the pleasure and the privilege to interview one of the leaders of this industry and this week is no different. I'm on a Zoom call with Lizzie Widhelm. Oh my god, we even practiced that and I even got it wrong. Lizzie Widhelm, you say it as it's written, who is the SVP of Ad Innovation at Pandora. And Lizzie came to my attention when, I think it was an article in the drum that said the top 50 most powerful people in the industry. And I thought, well, I should probably write to them. Um, and Lizzie came back because she said yes to the podcast. So Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give the audience a little bit of an overview of who you are and what you do? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um, yes, my name is Lizzie Widhelm. And I'm actually glad you messed it up because the more you say it, the more you <laughs> get, right? The more people will remember me. Frequency thing, Tom. <laughs> Um, so I have been at Pandora for 14 years. So I was on the original founding team way back when, when we were struggling to pay our bills and build what you know as Pandora today. Um, and in my role here, I've done a lot of different things, but my job now is to figure out, you know, what is the future of how we deliver ads so that we can keep the service free. And it's definitely it's definitely, I think, harder than ever, but more exciting than ever to be uh, up for that challenge. And you've also done a podcast yourself. I have. I have. I love a podcast. I love telling stories and connecting with people through audio. Um, it was called Lady Space. It was short-lived, sadly. A girlfriend and I did it for about a year. And I think we'd go back to do it. We were just talking about it. But but as you know, sometimes you have these, you know, seasons in life where you're just a little more overwhelmed than others. So I might, maybe 2020 will be the year I find some sense of balance to be creative and do it again. So that's a, a lovely manufactured segue to the first question. So thanks for that. So we always do these getting to know you questions at the start of the podcast. And one of the questions is, what do you do when you're suffering from overwhelm? So... It's, can you tell us a bit about how the podcast got a bit too overwhelming with a day job and uh, and having a family or or how what did you learn from that and how do you deal with life and work when it gets too much yeah i know i'm uh, just finished that book by um bob Iger. i don't know if you've read it the ride of a lifetime no and so tell me about that it's good but you know i think it He's obviously this, you know, world-class CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. Um, I'm not so much, but there's something that I've always felt really strongly about, which is, you know, never have more than really three things that you're doing well that really matter to you, because anything past three things in any given moment is just really sort of impossible to do well. And... At the time I was doing the podcast, um, Pandora was really in not an autopilot place, but it was pre Sirius XM buying us. And I had all my kids, I should mention I'm a mother of three, um, happily married also to a man who is an entrepreneur. And his job and career was sort of in a um, autopilot place. The kids were all at the same school and the business was was going well. So I had the free time really to kind of jump into something else. And 
Um, it was a really fun year. And then Pandora got acquired. A son of mine started high school. My husband started building a new um, company. So I think I just had to sort of go back to that rule. Like I just, I know myself and I can't do 20 things well. I just can't. So it's kind of sad, but at the same time, I think that's, that's life. You, you go through these um, seasons and experiences and every year, if you're a parent or, a, um, you know, find new interests, like you got to kind of load balance everything. And that's just what brought that to an end. But I could totally see myself starting it up again, especially once I get, um, you know, some of these things more evened out again in terms of what they need from me. And what did doing a podcast teach you about yourself? I, you know, I think that I really like meeting new people and I like different points of view. I think that sometimes you think you have all the right information in order to, you know, solve problems or drive your business or be a good parent. And then you start getting new ideas or really understanding how people approach things differently and then it opens your mind up to like, wait, my, I might actually want to take a bit of that and bring that into, you know, this project I'm working on or this problem I'm trying to solve. And for whatever reason, podcasting, because it's audio and because nobody's there trying to, you know, look great. Um, I, I don't know. People tend to just be more authentic. I'm not, it's not like people lie on video, but there's something about audio that just comes through more authentic because maybe there's less distraction. You know, it's ultimately more natural isn't it like it's it's quite a natural to have a, a conversation like whilst videoing yourself but I think with a good podcast you can forget that the microphone's there and and as you say you become more authentic and you open up so yeah I wish I, wish I had a, a better way to you know make money just by talking when you say the <laughs> I love it I could just talk <laughs> I just don't actually make enough money doing that. I, I really love, I love Howard Stern for that. I'm like, this guy's incredible. You know, you like what he says or doesn't say. He has made an incredible career out of essentially being the most popular podcaster in the world. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's a harder and harder place to uh, to make a living. I mean, I'm mercifully with the Shiny Object podcast. It's a passion project and it runs like alongside or in the background to my business. So, uh, so mercifully, it doesn't have to make money, which makes it a lot more enjoyable, I think, in some ways. But in, outside of the, the podcast, what has been the best investment of your time, energy and money like outside of work? Yeah, you know, um, about... 12 years ago, maybe, maybe 11 years ago, I had a girl that worked at Pandora and she was just incredible at pushing me to be more comfortable speaking, mostly public speaking. And so for about three years, I spent a lot of time and money trying to become a really talented, confident, um, natural public speaker. And it's funny at the time I was like, when am I going to use this? Like I'm not the CEO of the company. Um, but since then I have more opportunity than ever to obviously speak on behalf of the company, but also I speak at women's groups or I speak on parenting issues and things that are just passionate to me. And because I put in, you know, effort like you would to train for a marathon, um, to just be really good at it. Um, I'm so comfortable with it and I actually find that I love it more than ever. It's been really good for my career. Um, 
And, and at the time, I don't know if I gave it enough credit to what, you know, I think I was just focused on, okay, I'm going to have to do more keynote speeches and I need to just be natural, but it's come into every part of my life in terms of giving me, you know, the confidence at the PTA meeting or the confidence to volunteer to, you know, do something for a charity and get up on stage and raise money for an organization. And um, I think everybody should, if they can, find a way to be be comfortable um, in those public speaking settings. I completely agree. I, I, I think that some of the best things that's ha have happened to me in my career have been because I've just been crazy enough to stand on stage and do it. And years and years ago, I did stand-up comedy like really badly, like awful, awful, but loved the process, really enjoyed it. And uh, I had a, a coach or did a course and I said to the course leader, like, how, how do you feel when, you, when you're on stage, when people laugh, you know, do you still love it? And he just said, I feel nothing. I feel zero. Like it, it got to the point with public speaking or performing in public where there was no, he didn't react at all. It was just all process. It was all delivery. It was all following the rules and the skill. You know, he didn't get swept up in it. And I thought, again, I'm always confused whether that's really sad or really great. But I think that more and more as you do public speaking, the closer you can get to not being affected by anything that happens on stage, the better. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And if you can take some of the emotion out of it, which sounds sad, but if you if you can, then you're pretty effective at getting um, your message across. And, and there's so many tricks to public speaking to be, you know, when you think about marketing, like you're up there to tell a story. And then a lot of people get up in front of audiences and forget that we just want to hear stories. That's kind of how we're hardwired. So there's, it, it's not even just like, get up and don't run around the stage looking like you're a cage tiger and, you know, enunciate like that's all the basics, but, um, you know, connecting and being, um, you know, getting the audience to want to root for you and telling stories that they're going to remember and all of the, the kind of the science behind that one to many in physical real life, especially if you're public speaking, you know, in a big room, um, there's a lot of art and science to it. It's actually pretty fascinating. So, what other new beliefs and behaviors have you picked up in the last few years that have had a huge impact on your work? You know, you asked earlier, like, how do I deal with um, stress or when there's sort of too much to get done? And I don't know, I'm, I'm not old, I'm over 40, but <laughs> I it's not old, but it kind of feels old on the backside of maybe what my first career is. I'm trying to think what my second career is going to be, that whole second life concept. But I, I, I really feel like one of the um, key things I do now is this thing where I tell myself if I can't get through a problem or I just can't quite feel like I'm getting the flow I want from a, you know, a challenge or a piece of work that I'm leaning into, I just walk away and let things marinate. Like so much of me solving things or coming up with the right answer tends to happen when I'm not over-processing everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I had this conversation with uh, Nathan McDonald, one of the founders of We Are Social, the business they used to work for. And I said, look, how, how do you run a business and be a dad? Like how, how do you do that? And he just said, you've got to let your subconscious do most of the work for you. So you put the problem in your head you expose yourself to all the variables and all the different options and then you just leave it you, as you say you let you let it marinate and then what you what 
comes back in 45 minutes or a, or a day or a week is, is, is as valuable as you, you know, working at it straight for a day or something. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with, with him more. And, and when you give yourself permission to let your mind, your body, I mean, you have this entity that you've built up over years and years, 40, you know, for me, four decades of uh, lessons, both learned and bought. And what I mean by a bought lesson is like you make a huge mistake and you pay for it dearly. Right. Mm. Um, but you have to trust that it's all in the file system and you might not be able to access it at the time, but if you just let it kind of sit and marinate and come back to it instead of just scratching at it. Um, and I watch people scratch at things and it's, um, it, it, yeah, you rarely find success in that way. And, and you do have, you throw off a lot of shrapnel, if you know what I mean, while you're trying to do that. And it can injure those around you um, pretty, pretty badly. So before we move on to your shiny new object, we mentioned when we were chatting before that you, you're a big fan of a fuck up. You like, you, you, you sound excited about answering that question. So I'm really keen if you could share with the audience a couple of mistakes that you've made or one big one that you've made that you are ultimately so glad you did make because it's made you a better person. Yeah. Oh, I love a fuck up. Um, it goes back to what I was saying around buying lessons. I talk to my kids about this all the time. Like you will buy so many lessons in your life where you screw something up and you have to pay for it, but never buy a lesson twice. That's like, you know, the uh, definition of just being stupid in my mind. But um yeah, so I would say my first part, <laughs> excuse me, I'm getting over um, being sick, sorry. But the first part of my career, I was so focused on being right, like being the one with the right answer in the room and everybody else was wrong and look at me, I'm so special and I get the award and the, you know, the gold star. And I had a manager who pulled me aside, this is maybe 10 years ago and said, you know what? like. It might work for a spelling bee, but at the end of the day, you want to grow businesses and you want people to want to work with you and for you. It's about consensus. It's not about being right. It's about helping others to understand why you believe you have the right answer and being open to listening to them when maybe in some circumstances you don't, although he did tell me that, yes, I'm usually right. Um, but that it's important to bring people along with you. And I think I, you know, burnt so many, scorched the earth so many times with my I have to be right attitude, which is a young, you know, when you're smart and you're young and you come out of school and you're at the top of your class or, you know, everything's going well for you and you're an individual contributor, it can work really well. But then you move up into middle manager or you need to work um, in a team and you need to get people to collaborate with you. And it just, it's not a good look. It's just not a good look anymore. It's really more important for the project to win and for the group to feel like they succeeded. And I think there's very few CEOs, really successful CEOs that you look at them and say, oh my God, it's all about them and they're the smartest person. It just doesn't work. I mean, politics sadly is a little bit of a different story these days, but um, I'm glad I learned that lesson. Uh, I think it's contributed to me being a much better leader for sure. So your shiny new object is identity monetization. So can you explain to the audience what that is and why you're excited about it? Yeah, I think, you know, taking a step back, identity is um, a very 
straightforward word, but a pretty big word in today's environment. So many, um, and I'm just coming off of CES, so it's timely in that a lot of people are talking about privacy, right? You've got all of the United States, um, individual states here working on privacy regulation. You guys in Europe have had GDPR for over a year. Are you a year into it? Yeah, more, yeah a lot more than that, yeah. And I think, you know, there's all this conversation around panic that, you know, listeners or users or consumers, um, you know, don't want you to sell their data and don't want you to be in control of, you know, who they are and what data you have on them. And I believe that there's a future where it's maybe exactly the opposite. It's going to take some work, but my theory is, and, and this is, again, I think about everything from a personal standpoint. And, and then from a global or, you know, large group standpoint, but it, it I, I believe that my identity is actually something I'm pretty proud of. I find that those people that know me well, I tend to get better um, feedback from, right? So if you take a business, for example, like Starbucks knows me really well. I love the relationship I have with Starbucks. When I go in there, they know who I am. They know what I want. Yes, part of it's because I've ordered, but they can anticipate and the app anticipates what I want. You can see a future where I probably just walk into Starbucks and what I want is ready. But, um, you know, so monetizing that identity is um, something that I think I'm more interested in than like holding it back. Um, so I have a bunch of examples of, how I think that plays out, but um, I just think there's something there. There. So give me give me those examples. So obviously you're talking about a, a single customer view yeah. experience you have with Starbucks, but how far do you want to take it? Do you do you want? I think you know. Think about the grocery store, for example. Do you do the food shopping in your house? Uh, I sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, so. There are a lot of products in a grocery store and many of them are paying to have, many of them are paying a lot to have optimal shelf space, to have, um, you know, logo and branding where you're checking out. And there's a lot of money transacting in those stores before you even walk in. Right. Truth. And, yep. you know, I, I also know that I find food shopping to be incredibly annoying um, I have to think really hard. What am I going to cook? How many kids do I have? What kind of a meal, um, you know, nutritional value balance do I want for my family? What time of year is it? What is my calendar? Right? Like, I would love a world where I just give up the goose. Here's how many kids we have. This is the schedule for the week. Here's how many meals we're going to have to cook. I mean, I'll give the grocery store everything. Here's who's allergic to what, right? Here's who was sick last week. I mean, I would love nothing more than to give them everything they have, but I want to monetize it. So I actually want the cart prepackaged for me. I want those companies that were paying for shelf space to now give me that money, not in terms of cash, but like I want free samples. I want pre-made food that maybe you're going to test on me. I want to be sort of in your like VIP, um, you know, grouping in terms of how you think about customers. And so that's like a really basic example of like, I want something back for my data. And I actually think there's a real opportunity for these brands to, instead of spending money the way they do traditionally to get on the shelf and find their way into my cart, 
they just cut through that. And we sort of like cut that deal to get them to instead put that money in my cart with real product. So the, the only other person that's talked about this is a guy called Jim Stern. I'll, I'll ping over the, the podcast after this. And he was talking about uh, a technology called Inrupt, which is uh, Tim Berners-Lee's latest project. I don't know if it, how well it's funded or how well it's doing, but the idea there is that you have a, like, it's like a, a box essentially that has all of your data in it and, and it has everything from passport. Uh, financial health location all, all the way through down to the things that you mentioned like you know preference uh, vegan or whatever and then you you al- allow certain people or certain businesses sorry access at different levels so if you know you're you want to book a flight and it's on BA like yeah you can get my passport details but you don't get to know that I'm vegan or that I'm diabetic or, or whatever it is and so the idea is that you would you would then uh like consumers would would do deals with brands basically instead of um instead of as you say shops so collectively all the people that want a certain thing can can do a deal with a brand and then everyone gets sent that thing and i think that's that could be really interesting for things like packaging because as you say you pay for expensive shelf space you pay for really fancy packaging so your packaging leaps out off the shelf and ultimately that thing just goes in the bin and in a circular economy world or whatever you want to call it that's not sustainable like i i got sent a bag of oranges the other day um and so you had they were in a net but then also there was a label on the net with pictures of oranges in color saying that it was oranges and i just thought are you kidding me really there is we haven't sold this yet that we still can't sell six oranges without having a picture of oranges on a a clear bag of oranges sorry i've gone on a bit of a rant about no, fruit no, there, I but know, but like the, the model's not going to sustain you know the there 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 are so many businesses that need customers right whether it's the travel uh the the orange i mean you name it right everybody's spending billions and billions of dollars to convince me and you to buy things and i would venture to guess that 80 percent of what hits me Identity, Lizzie Widhelm, female, you know, California, mama three, you know, fill in the blank. I would venture to tell you, I think 80% of it is a wasted dollar on me. It doesn't match my identity at all. I'm not interested. I'm never going to buy. And then the things that I really want, the 20% that really are in my consideration set are then watered down when I get them. So we're not having the type of relationship that we should have with, you know, myself and that brand, right? And so I just think that the only way to solve that is we as the consumer have to be really upfront about, to your point, I like the idea of the company you were talking about, getting all of our preferences, future plans, like I want to go to Scotland in the summer. Why doesn't everyone start bidding back to me on what I should be doing there? And especially do it based on my preferences, knowing that you know, I prefer X, Y, Z in a hotel. So the guys that don't have Wi-Fi don't market to me. That's like a silly example, but you'll get what I'm saying. Because they're just going to waste their time. Um, so it's kind of like purifying the connections um, so that more money can actually be spent on the connection that matters. And then I actually get a better relationship than the watered down one I'm getting right now. And then the 80% that I just don't frankly give a shit about, like go away, find another Find your customer somewhere else because it's not me. 
So how do you think this is going to play out? So we've had GDPR, and as you mentioned, all the different states coming up with their own version of that. And then we're potentially moving towards an internet where you won't be able to track and retarget. And I know, um, obviously, Google's announcement about cookies last week was a huge step towards that. Um, And do you think we'll get to a point where we're like, hold on a minute, we need to as a society, we we're happy now to give up some of our data. Now that we've seen a comparison, are we gonna are we gonna think before and after GDPR and think, oh, well, wasn't the internet so great? How is it gonna play out? What what are the steps that you think need to happen in order for for you and I and whoever else wants to be kind of data open, if you like, to yeah. to to make that happen? Because I know that obviously obviously the brands and the suppliers. And the retailers, they would kill for more data. Like, you know, we work in that space, right? But what needs to happen culturally to to get to that point? Well, and and maybe it's not even a cultural thing, but the plumbing isn't there. Um, I was listening to a handful of panels that Publicis, super, obviously, super-sized holding company um, in the world in terms of working with advertisers and brands and they're pivoting hard towards, you know, not even being focused on media per se right away, but trying to get their clients to get the plumbing in order to, once they have the data, let's just say there is a world where all the customers want to give up the goose, if you will, and give, give data over in order to get a more personalized, rewarding, humanized relationship with that brand. They just aren't even in a place to process the data real time, which is what has to happen. Some clients obviously are further along than others, but um, I can't remember who said it. I think it was the CEO of the agency said that, um, you know, maybe close to 70 or 80% of their clients, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't know the exact quote, aren't ready to even act on the data if they had it. So I don't, I think the first step, like there is a lot of data out there, some of it, you know, more accurate than, uh, than others. Um, you know, at Pandora, we sit on a ton of this data because we see listeners for three or four hours a day on the service and we can infer a lot about people based on the content they consume. Um, but if you can't act on it and deliver that experience back in a pretty frictionless way, um, I just don't think the whole thing works. So I feel like it's going to be a hard two years of these companies getting compliant, which will be the maybe just the forcing function to get the plumbing organized, but hopefully that plumbing is again, like I said, used for better use, used for, you know, delivering a more human experience back to the customer, not just being compliant with, hey, if you want your data back, you can take it back. And it just bums me out that I think everyone today is really just focused on the compliance issue and not the, well, what if, you know, what if we had a different relationship? What if there was a way where we were never at risk of them wanting to take their data back because we were so fucking good at delivering them an awesome customer experience and giving them real value back, like value like they've never seen before. Free content, free samples. You know, oh, like you've been such a great customer. We have this sample of this new jacket we're trying on and we picked you and 5,000 other people to try it. Tell us what you think. Like it just doesn't happen anymore. Everything has become so sort of commoditized and I don't know. I think, um, it's my big dream that the world becomes better like that. But I don't know, maybe the silver lining is, like I said, the privacy stuff at least forces the plumbing that then can enable um, a new sort of 
this new identity builds business to build on top of it. Yeah, I, I share your dream and I think that it would be great if it happened, but I'm so skeptical because if I use a service like Google Maps, for example, and I start typing in, I don't know, like the first three or four letters of a business and it gives me the initial search results shows that are in it like India or Canada or somewhere. And you're like, come on, man, you know exactly where I am. You have full access to like, right, Tom? Well, yeah, this is it. Like if, if the, if the business with all the information can't string that together, then, you know, like really, are we going to get to this point where we can, we all get send free samples and jackets. I, I don't know. Like, Big data is one thing, uh, but as you, even if the infrastructure is in place and even if you've got the the machine learning capabilities to understand all that data, like even if the most one of the most creative and big, well-funded companies in the world can't get together a, a simple Google Maps search term, I, I doubt that this uh, utopia that you, I think you rightly uh, are dreaming of is going to happen, or am I being too pessimistic? Well, I think it has to get to a place where you know, the fracture becomes so strong that these brands just can't do anything else but change, meaning they don't have enough information to continue to do business the way they do it today, and they have to try a different way. Just the marketing isn't working anymore. To your point, like they can't track it because they've lost cookies and they can't understand if their dollars are working or not working. It's going to take a moment like that maybe to change it or someone just being really brave and saying we want to have a more human relationship with our customers we think that that is the future we think that this next generation of i mean i watch my kids like they are more relation based buyers than i ever was well, give me an example of that um you know it's funny we were um in Santa Monica shopping, I have two boys and they're like sneakerheads and watch well, two teenage boys who isn't a sneakerhead, right? Um, but we went into six different stores looking for this same pair of Adidas that are these like Star Wars, right? And um, the last store, we ended up with a salesperson that could read based on how my kids were dressed and sort of the swagger that these kids have and connected with them right away. Not only like from a language standpoint, sort of talking like a teen kid does. And by the way, the salesperson was in their early forties, male, um, knew a way to approach them to be like, Hey man, like, what are you looking, you know, what are you looking for? You know? Oh, and, and the conversation just was flowing. He was at the back of the store, found the shoes, like connected with my kids. I kind of stayed out of the way. Um, they had a very personal connected experience and we walked out of there and got in the car and they're sort of chatting. And I said, you know, well, that was a fun day. Like glad we finally got the shoes. And they're like, mom, we only want to stop shop at the store. You know, this, this particular Adidas store, which by the way, they're like four, if you can believe that on the same street. Um, I was like, why, you know, thinking, Oh, great customer service. Like we checked out really well. Like, I just want to work with that guy, Luke. Like, he's just cool. He just gets me. Otherwise, I would just buy online. Like all those other stores were ridiculous. It was so annoying. We answered the same questions over and over again. The salespeople could obviously see who we were, like didn't connect. So even they are like buying based on an emotional feel of connecting with someone more so than, you know, maybe what I bought on, which was just as the 
is the product for sale here? Can I get it at a good price? You know, price actually didn't even come into the conversation um, when I was talking to the boys about this. So I, I, I don't know, I reflect on their behaviors a lot. That's interesting, isn't it? That uh, maybe I've got this wrong, but the, your kind of open data dream uh, is that's so different to a, like an interpersonal connection in a shop. Like, and he, it's so interesting the things that you pointed out, like the, his his language, um, his his ability to uh, size up what your kids look like and make some of the correct assumptions about them. You know, that's that's loads of data signals all evidencing itself in a conversation whereas you're talking about loads of data signals that's online mobile location device preferences to all come together to to the same thing so i I wonder how do those worlds join up together i've seen a lot of stuff in the um the creative creativity and ai uh, whatsapp group that i'm part of uh, about um uh, virtual and synthetic avatars representing brands you know, so you could have a conversation with, with a with a you know avatar that could do the same thing as this guy did. So, how do you think that's going to be a thing in marketing in the, in the near future? Are we going to see more examples of um, synthetic conversations created online, or, or or do you think your kids would see straight through that as BS? No, I I don't think I, I think that that'll happen. You know, going back to your, um, I think at the front end of the conversation where we were talking a little bit about direct mail or maybe we were talking about it offline or the or the oranges example like you know receiving um material that has that personality language like even just direct mail to the house right so i don't know about you guys in the uk but i receive a dtc brand right a direct to consumer brand offering whether it's like you know a casper mattress or a um thistle food delivery to my house every single day in the post box, right? And none of it's customized. None of it's personalized to the fact that we have three kids. None of it understands um, our likes or dislikes around food. But if it did, I actually think, again, we're having a human connection, even though it's, you know, via direct mail. So like data and machine learning, AI, like all, all of that can come together to again just like make a more personal connection. I think that's you know what I, what I'm getting at, and I think humans inherently like warm. We're kind of coming full circle back to the podcast, right? Warm, authentic conversations. Like it's how we've evolved. Like it's from the beginning of humankind. We like to connect with other humans and the more that a brand can feel human and yes it has to have the data and yes what feels human is when there's a give and take and not just me feeling like i'm a consumer of said brand but let this consumer knows me and is coming forth with um you know a better a better offering a better relationship because of it um i i think we can't not get there maybe we don't get to utopia where um, everybody, you know, is is ready for the Lizzie Whithelm profile when it hits them or identity, but um, it has to get better. I think we need to leave it there. It has to get better. <laughs> That's a nice way to finish off. What was a, a really interesting conversation for me, Lizzie? Thank you so much. If anyone listening to this podcast wanted to get in touch with you about their cool new identity monetization startup or other, how would you like them to do that? I'm Lizzie Whithelm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. 
And what makes a great LinkedIn message to you? Not one on a Monday. Do you really <laughs> people and pester them on Mondays? Like, I'm always shocked. <laughs> Um, no, yours was really good. You reached out to me on LinkedIn and yours was very good. It was very human. I think, um, I should pull it up, but it was something like you ended with like good idea, bad idea. Are you interested? You know, it was really human. It didn't go on forever. And you sent a sample of what your product is. So it was very, I, we should just actually just replay what you wrote me back. Cause it was pretty fantastic. I think I replied to you within a couple days. Yeah, I think you did. So, be human. Think, yeah, I. Whoa, this makes me feel uncomfortable <laughs> broadcasting uh, my LinkedIn messages. But, uh, you know, I have edit rights, I guess, ultimately. But let's yeah. see, what, what we'll did I say? It, we'll just leave it with, I could tell you were cool. You know, you were a good guy. You had a great personality and a sense of humor in probably the 75 words you wrote. Ah. Well, I, well, I'm blushing now. That's uh, <laughs> it's incredibly kind. But this podcast isn't about me; it's about you, Lizzie. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Um, hopefully, you will get lots of succinct, funny human reach outs, uh, not on a Monday. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, let's reconnect in the future about how this identity monetization thing plays out. Because I think you're right, and I think things need to get better. Thank you so I have much. I have for how I'm going to do it at Pandora. So. I can't tell you now, but we've got we've got some plans. Wow. Okay. I will I will, I will watch this space. Lizzie, thank you so much. Take care, Tom. <laughs>